like a mannequin, freeze like a mannequin, pause and hold it light, light, like a mannequin, freeze like a mannequin, freeze like a mannequin, pause and hold it like, like, like a mannequin, like a mannequin, like, like a mannequin. Hello and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, and in our never-ending quest to bring you more of the underrated, underloved, unknown movies out there, boy, do we have a perfect choice for that today. My movie today is called Tourist Trap, and it is a very obscure horror movie from 1979, and it's just one of those that not many people know about, but those who do know about it love it and just absolutely rave about it. And this is one that was absolutely made for the, a, a podcast like this. It's just begging for more people to know about it. So, again, our movie's Tourist Trap, and I'm going to bring on my guest here. My guest here is a uh, a fellow horror movie fan. He is a big-time lover of this movie. In fact, I believe he's the one who recommended it to me rather than me recommending it to him. And it fascinates me because he's way younger than me, and I have no idea how he knows about this movie in the first place. So I'd like to bring him on, and we'll delve into this. Welcome, Justin Jones. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's get into this question right away, Justin. What what year were you born? 97. You were born in 97, and we are talking about a movie from 1979 here. Now, yeah. it came out 18 years before you were born. It was a bomb. It made no money. You're not even from this country. You're from the Netherlands, correct? Yes, I am. How the hell do you know about Tourist Trap? <laughs> um, so, growing up, like especially during my teenage stage, I was very much into slasher movies. Um, I had often just marathon, you know, like the more mainstream franchises like Friday 13th and Halloween and stuff and just all the sequels that were that came afterwards and yeah and I just knew a lot about slashers so I once I kind of went through all of the more well-known ones Mm -hmm. it kind of turned into me doing some deep research about more obscure slashers Um, and that's when I kind of encountered Taurus Trap and it had a certain charm to it and yeah, it kind of stuck with me, so <laughs> that's kind of how I know about it. <laughs> you just told me recently you, like, own the soundtrack. You have it on vinyl or something for Tourist Trap? Yes, I actually bought the vinyl, like, three weeks <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. You're a bigger horror movie nerd than I am. I love that. And, again, I, I have my extreme, but I've never owned a movie from 18 years before I was born with the soundtrack on vinyl. So I, I tip my cap to you and is, like... Would you say this is one of the best horror movies you you know? Is it just an obscure one? Like, what, just be, without going too much into the plot, what what does this movie mean to you? Why did this one jump out to you so much? Um, I wouldn't say it's, like, one of my all-time favorites, but it kind of has that, like, cult appeal to it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, like, I don't know, just, just like, the soundtrack and just, like, the, the cheesiness, but together with also just the unsettling nature that, kind of complements each other in a way. So I think that that's kind of what stuck with me. So that's one of the things that I fondly remember. It's not like something that I claim to be a masterpiece, but it's one that I often recommend to, you know, people who are also into slasher movies. Yeah, this is one of those that I don't recommend to like first time horror movie watchers or they're just getting into horror movies. This is one that I tend to recommend to people who think they know every other horror movie. And I just love throwing this one at them and like, hey, there's this movie where these mannequins come to life and attack people in this little out of the way motel or out of the way rest stop place. And like, it's funny because, you know, I thought I knew every horror movie. And every so often I just uh, go out and Google search like random, like, 
underrated horror movies or top 20 under unknown horror movies because people are always making lists and posting them and this is one that just popped up a lot and that's how i discovered and i only i only discovered it about five years ago so that's yeah it's one of those things like like you were getting at it's just it's just an unsettling little i mean it's not really a masterpiece but it's also at the same time not a waste of time either it's a fun it's flawed but it's a very fun memorable quirky little movie I could definitely see the flaws in it, and and some parts are a little laughable, but I mean that's part of the charm to it, you know. It's like it has those cheesy moments that you know you want from a slasher, <laughs> but it you know also just has that, also something about it too that like just the mannequins and how they move and everything. It's just I don't know, it kind of sticks with you if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, for the people who have never seen it before, this is like I said, it's a story of these young people that kind of end up at this little. Uh, it's called Slauson's Lost Oasis. This little unknown little former tourist stop on the edge of town and it's all abandoned now and they get in there and it's basically this guy who lives alone and he's got a collection of mannequins and they're very lifelike and they're going to come to life and they start attacking people and it's very again it's 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 a goofy movie it was a they did it on riff tracks did you know that they actually the mystery science theater guys actually made a fun of this movie I read about that. I did not actually see it, though. <laughs> yeah, I, I have not seen it, and I will not see it because I, I love this movie too much. But that that is one of the things that people don't know. That I mean, I've grown up with mystery science theater my whole life. That like that they don't necessarily just watch horrible movies. They want to watch quirky, cheesy movies. Those are the ones that tend to work best with the riffing. And that's like there's a lot of a lot of these weird horror movies from the 70s would make fantastic mystery science theater episodes. So I don't think that's really a condemnation of this movie that they did it on riff tracks other than I ain't watching it. (laughs) (laughs) And the one other thing I want to mention about this movie to people and and this is fascinating and this is one of the reasons I wanted to do this episode so badly is that you know what this movie is rated, right, Justin? It's PG. It's PG. <laughs> this is a rare PG-rated slasher movie to the point that the director, when you know he made it, and it, this is legitimately a scary, unsettling R-rated horror movie, and the, when the director made it and he cut it and there's no nudity, there's barely any blood in it, and the MPAA said, we're going to give it a PG, and he's like, no, oh, no, that'll kill my audience. So to this day, he's still bitter that they gave his movie a PG. Yeah, and I've you've seen that, right? His interviews, he's mad about it that they gave it, and they they killed any chance that it ever had to develop an audience. Yeah, no, he's he's definitely still bitter about it. Um, which I mean, I can understand. I because I mean, back then, I don't believe they had a PG thirteen yeah. rating, so it was just like either PG or R. So it was just like this was just like on that fine line like in between but it definitely leaned more towards r and i find it amazing that it didn't get an r to be honest oh, yeah. yeah there's three scenes in particular and we're gonna walk through this movie beat by pete we're not i mean they, we're this is one of those we're gonna spoil the whole thing for you so don't worry about it but but yeah there's three scenes in particular in this movie that are absolutely should have guaranteed an r and there's one where the girl gets a knife in the back of her head there's no yeah. way that should be in a pg movie and then there's one at the beginning where this guy gets impaled by a bunch of metal objects which is way too scary for a PG movie and then the one I know I'm can you guess what the third scene is I'm gonna say here um what would you say the most memorable scariest scene in this movie is the one that stuck out to me but it didn't have anything to do with like anything like gory it was just like just the haunting image was when Tanya Roberts was on the ground and the mannequins were like surrounding her oh yeah and like with like the kind of whimpering sound that they were making uh, <laughs> together with the soundtrack. That's the part that unsettles me most whenever I see it. Mm-hmm. But 
I doubt that that's the one that you mean. <laughs> that, that is actually a fantastic one, and I have a point about that I want to make. But the, the, the third scene that really I think is the signature scene is where a girl is basically suffocated when the, the, oh, the, okay. the bad guy puts plaster all over her, pa- her face until she dies of panic and her heart explodes, which is such <laughs> a unsettling scene. I'm like, there's no way that should be in a movie that's PG. There's, uh, it's, it astounds me that this one got away with the PG rating, but again, it did, and it haunted this movie, and that was the big problem with this movie, why you don't hear about Tourist Trap in the same breath as Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th and Halloween, because it was a PG, and it was considered a little too light, and then it really got a, it just kind of uh, got a legacy as being this movie that was on cable TV a lot in the 80s, and then just was just kind of forgotten. Yeah, I heard it was on cable um, a lot, and like a lot of or like a lot of people that, you know, did see it one time on cable, they were often like younger, mm-hmm. So it's one of those films that really, really unsettled them like that. So it's like it kind of also kind of grew a cult following because of that. Mm-hmm. But it's like still a smaller one, though. It's definitely not like something that ever blew up and is now forgotten, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I think the word I think you were searching for is traumatized, that a lot of little kids <laughs> yeah. stumbled onto this movie in the 80s, mid 80s, and were traumatized by what is ostensibly a PG movie where horrible, bad things are happening to people. And and, and I have some experience with this myself is that I will, I will share a little bit of my history with horror movies here. When I was a little kid, I'm talking five, six, seven years old, you know, I, my parents wouldn't let me watch R-rated movies. There's nothing like Friday the 13th, Halloween. Those were never going to see the light of day in my house. But you would see stuff on TV that was creepy and would push the boundaries. And I do remember seeing when I was a kid, like in kindergarten, somebody made a student film. And it was on like Showtime or HBO a lot. And it was about this guy. He was like a, a filmmaker and he worked with negatives, like film stock and film negatives. Uh-huh. And at one point, one time late at night, all these film strips came to life and they started coming after him and trying to strangle him. And the whole movie with these inanimate pieces of film stock coming to get him. And it was like the scariest thing. And I, to this day, I've been looking for that movie. I don't know what it is, but it bothered me so much. And it's just this idea that inanimate objects will come and attack you and try to kill you. And that's such an unsettling thing for little kids to yeah. see, which I think is why this movie probably messed up so many kids of that era. Because, again, it's the inanimate, these mannequins coming to life and attacking you. And it's such a creepy premise that it just sits with you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I've definitely had those types of movies growing up as well. Um, I mean, I don't think it was like those types of obscure ones. But, you know, there, there were like certain movies that like really unsettled me. Like there was... Um, like I saw the howling when I was, I think like eight or nine. Uh, <laughs> and that there, there were some scenes in that that kind of got me a little bit mm-hmm. traumatized. So, <laughs> um, and then, yeah. And then, I mean, of course I grew up with like Friday 13th and Nightmare on Street. So I guess I was a little bit more used to that, mm-hmm. but you know, just used to just the horror genre in general. <laughs> but yeah, there's just something about. Yeah, just like those more like unsettling scenes. It's it's very rare that you actually find movies that have, you know, like this things that can really stick with you because so many slasher movies are so forgettable. Yeah, this movie's just great. <laughs> well again, again, most movies movies will beat you over the head with either gore kind of in the eighties or nowadays with the jump scares. But I was just thinking back to that inanimate objects thing. I remember Poltergeist, you've seen Poltergeist, I would assume, right? Yes, yes, I have. Yeah, that movie messed up every single kid I know when the clown doll attacks the little kid and the tree. Like, little stuff like that just really affects kids. And I'm trying to think even like Creepshow 2, there was a scene where that floating blob in the lake attacks the people on the raft, which always bothered me. 
That was actually a scene that I saw when I was like seven, I think. Oh, I bet that was a fun night. Yeah, that that one was actually like I I remember I was raving about it to my friends uh, back then, and it was just like you know I I was just telling them the story about you know the fact that there was this blob that was like basically tearing people's skin off as they were swimming. But yeah, it, Creep Show is also one of those really just true like great products from that time you know mm-hmm. now we are speaking of uh stephen king who of course wrote creep show and and we this movie has a very interesting tie-in with stephen king are you familiar with it um yeah so apparently with that dance macabre or whatever yeah uh, he wrote it, there was like a certain fragment of the book that he was raving about like underappreciated horror movies that more people should see and he mentioned uh, Taurus Trap and saying that it, you know, was basically one that he feels that all horror movie lovers should basically see. Yeah, Stephen King wrote this book in around 1981, 82, 83, somewhere in there. It's called Dance Macabre. And it's really his thoughts on the industry, on horror movies, horror books in general, and just everything about horror. And there's a section, there's a chapter where Stephen King talks about his favorite horror movies over the years. And this is the one. This is the one that Stephen King lists as his all-time favorite underrated horror movie. He says Tourist Trap, and he raves about it in there. And it's funny because I read that after I had just seen it for the first time. And I'm like, oh, my God, why did I read this book earlier? I would have known about Tourist Trap. But, yeah, so the only danger with that is I'm worried we're going to get people's hopes up. Like, this movie isn't as good as Halloween or any of those masterpieces, but it is fantastic in its way that... Like, the first 45 minutes of this movie are about as creepy as any movie I could think of. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it, it, I, I always said that this movie had a really unique structure. Um, instead of just, like, letting everything be a slow burn type of thing where they, like, the first 45 minutes is basically build up. Like, a lot in this movie, like, for example, the opening scene, like, one of... There's only, like, five, like, real, you know characters in this movie and like one of them just dies in the opening scene so you're just left with four and it's really interesting how the structure is for the rest of the movie because like basically the final act starts when you're like just barely halfway through the movie (laughs) it's really interesting but yeah those first you know 40 minutes are definitely like it creates a very unique atmosphere to say the least (laughs) And I, I have heard people, I know a couple people that know this movie, and they'll say, this is something I hear a lot, that, oh, it's such a wonderful, it's like such an amazing half of a movie, and then it kind of tails off in the second half, which, I don't know if that's really fair to it. I mean, obviously, I don't think the second half is as strong as the first half, but yeah. it's it's one of those, yeah, it's it's not, it does not keep up the pace, unfortunately, and it just doesn't work all the way to the end, I don't think, but man, I just, again, this... If you want 45 minutes of a horror movie, the first half of Tourist Trap is about as good as you're going to find, I would say. Right. And then also just like the way, just like when you get bits and pieces of like the backstory and you're like kind of piecing things together. For example, like the wife, you know, that's like the mannequin Mm -hmm. that is like in the little, you know, light door frame thing, you know, (laughs) Uh, it's, you know, and then they're like looking through the picture book and they kind of like saying like oh that looks a lot like and maybe it's just a sort of tribute and then you know like a little bit before that they actually you know felt the skin or it's like this feels really real mm-hmm. i don't know it's, it seems like that you know that kind of build up the mystery aspect a little bit i mean even though it's kind of a dead giveaway you know that what it actually is but it's still you know it kind of co- it contributes to the story which i you know like 
<laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's one that does reward you for repeat viewings. And I've only seen it a couple times. I think today I watched it, and it's only the third time I've ever seen it. But you do notice more and more of the story. Like, the first time you watch it, there's so much going on with uh, telekinesis going on and people turning into mannequins and then back to skin again. And are people dead? Are they reincarnated? Are there two bad guys? Are there one? It's kind of hard to take it all in in the first time. But I would say it gets better on multiple viewings. And I do notice every time I watch it, I like it a little bit more. Yeah, no, this this was also my third time viewing it, and yeah, it's it's definitely like one of those. I because I, I think the uh, last time I saw it was in 2015. So yeah, this was definitely like very like if I wouldn't have seen it tonight, I think I probably like would have forgotten most of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, of course, now I would have remembered like the scenes that stuck with me. But like just because it does have at the end of the day, you know, it does still have. The typical like slasher filler, you know, that kind of is a little bit forgettable. Okay, I'm just, I'm just curious before we delve into this. What again? I it, it's kind of hard recommending horror movies on this podcast because I know a lot of people that just don't like horror movies. They don't take them seriously. Sure, yeah. And then I have some of my listeners who will only listen to my horror movie episodes because that's all they're here for. So it's kind of an it's a it's a odd mixed bag of uh, when you start recommending horror movies. And I always say I never recommend anything that's just blood and guts. I don't recommend anything that's just torture porn or unpleasant to sit through. I recommend stuff that. It's quirky and just unsettling and will sit with you. And and uh, so I'm curious, like, what is your favorite horror movie overall? I, I make no pretense about it that my favorite is Halloween, and I don't think any of the other horror movie is even close. I think they're all kind of some variant or ripoff of Halloween. What What's your favorite? I'm curious. Well, one of my favorites is Wes Craven's debut film, The Last House on the Left from 1972. Mm. Um, that one is unhinged horror at its best in my opinion uh people a lot a lot of people actually see it as like exploitation trash uh but to me it like has i don't know there's like there's certain things that like really really stuck with me in that movie and like truly disturbed me to the core and it was like one of those movies that was just like i can't believe this was made in that during that time you know like when things were a bit more sensitive and just like just to the extremities it went and you know i because i i generally don't really like you know just like the the over amount of gore and stuff like that. And it's, but I don't know, I feel like the last lesson on the left kind of had more of a artistic side to it that kind of made it better. So yeah, the last lesson on the left is definitely one of them. Um, and then of course, you know, it, it sounds a little bit cliche, but I, I grew up with the shining. Uh, so that's definitely like one of my mm-hmm. all time favorites as well. I also watched the miniseries. Mm-hmm. Um, from Stephen King, which I didn't like very much, but <laughs> like the, the Stanley Kubrick one was, you know, I I just love Stanley Kubrick as a director. I've seen all of his movies, and and then also Audition from 1999 by Takeshi Mikey. I don't know if you ever saw that one. I have heard of that one. That's one that people get warned about before they see it. Yes, that one is. I wasn't really expecting too much going into it. But I left that theater like a different a different man, <laughs> like straight up. Audition is not one that I would inflict on my viewers without probably screening them and warning them first. Because I, I again I haven't actually seen that. I just heard about it. I kind of know all the beats. Yeah. And I'm like, oh that that would be a fun one to talk about. But Last House on the Left, that's hardcore. Like that's full on <laughs> like you're saying the seventies were a little more gentle time. It was also more of an unregulated time when you could get away with anything in a movie. 
And some of that yeah. stuff, yeah, Last House on the Left is not one that I would do on staff picks only because I don't want to mess up people's lives that have never seen it before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, I fully respect I fully respect that you love that movie because I know a lot of people who do. But yeah, that's that is hardcore horror movie right there. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those that you know you truly just never forget. Um, have you seen it then? I have. I know Last House on the Left very well, and that's that. Yeah, when I when, again we have listeners that don't even watch horror movies, and I will say. Uh, uh, Tourist Trap is nothing like any of these other ones. This is such a palatable PG movie that you can watch, and it's not going to just beat you over the head with with unpleasantness and gore. And again, so that's that's the point I'm trying to get across. That there's there's much much harder stuff out there that we're not going to be talking about in this episode. The next one is the original 1974 uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre by Toby Hooper. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one. I was fascinated by that movie as a child, uh, <laughs> which sounds very macabre, and I'm like, I can understand why my mom thought I'd one day turn it to <laughs> like some sort of, you know, odd, you know, slash serial killer. But I ended up not turning into that because, <laughs> like, she legit one time and for, forbid me to buy horror movies because, like, one time we went to the free record shop. I wanted to buy the entire collection of Nightmare on Elm Street, and I think I was like nine at the time. Okay. <laughs> oh, she said, don't even think about it. Like, it's cause like she saw the games I was playing with my friends and a lot of them were tag, but we'd play as characters from horror movies instead. <laughs> so like I would pick like Leatherface or something. And then one of my friends would pick Michael Myers. And then like whoever was not, whoever was like not the tagger was like the victim. <laughs> uh, so it was because of those like games that my mom was getting slightly concerned. <laughs> So, but yeah, Texas Chainsaw though was like one of those movies that she basically did not want me to see until I was like 16. Those are good. Those are those are good instincts by a mother, I should say. By the way, <laughs> yeah, pretty sure. Like back then, I was like hating on her, but like now, I could totally understand. That. <laughs> like that one's kind of creepy. I mean, I like now, you know, I'm definitely generally a pretty timid person, so I <laughs> am not like anything like what one may have predicted at some point in my life, but. Um, well, I should point out your mom was worried that you were going to turn into like a serial killer and you have not, but I should point out you're still young and there's time. So she, she, she do be very cognizant of that as you're growing up that your mom was worried about this. Remember, you still have about 10 more years before you have the possibility to turn evil. So be careful of that. Okay. Definitely will be. I have to say for our non-horror movie fans, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, very similar to Tourist Trap in many ways. It's very, it's got an almost identical plot in some places. But what's interesting about Texas Chainsaw is that it's almost bloodless. There's almost no gore in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is weird. You wouldn't think that. The thing that's unsettling about Texas Chainsaw, though, is that it has like this documentary sort of way of filming Mm -hmm. um, that kind of like makes it have this like unhinged feeling. I'm going on to the last one, Suspiria. More really hardcore horror movies here. (laughs) Um, Yes, Suspiria is like, just like the color palette is one of the most unique color palettes I've ever seen on film. Um, It's a lot of people say that it's style over substance, which which I can see. The movie is incredibly cheesy, Uh, but it's a visual spectacle that I feel everyone should should see. But the the gore. It isn't as like it's, it's it's not as bad as like you you you'd probably think. It's like so few and far between that it's like I feel like I, it shouldn't be judged upon that. 
Again, you got you got to know your audience with those ones you're recommending to people. Because again, I I've shown my kid, my daughter in particular, Vanessa. I've shown her tons of horror movies. I'm always trying to get her to appreciate the really good ones, the really ones that I would consider artistic. I don't know if I would ever show her Last House on the Left because I would be afraid that would traumatize her. Texas Chainsaw is not one we've done yet, but I've I've leaned towards it. I'm I'm kind of waiting to make sure she's ready for that one because that one that that one's an experience. Uh, Suspiria, sure, yeah. Suspiria might be a little too hardcore for me even let alone an uh, 18-year-old girl. So, yeah, it's, these are these are all hardcore horror movies. Yeah, so you you clearly know your stuff. You like these these really uh, I wouldn't say disturbing, but the really un uh, unregulated artistic ones would be your preference, I would say. Yeah, and I also really love it when movies kind of go a bit more into the psyche of, you know, the characters and especially when it comes to serial killers, mm-hmm. which is what I love about Taurus Trap actually was that they tried to humanize the villain. Yeah, they actually do. They actually do try to give this story a a motivation, like a real-life backstory for their their bad guy, which is the interesting thing. So, yeah, that's the thing. Like, let's we got about 30 minutes here. Let's go through Tourist Trap for people who have never seen this before, which I'm guessing is all of you. What what about your favorite horror movies? Like just just a quick like name halloween my all-time favorite is the original halloween i love black christmas which came before that very similar to halloween we did a show on that um one of my all-time favorite movies i don't know if it's uh, fair to call it a horror movie is the wicker man the original wicker man from the 70s yeah and then i am a big fan of these paranoia thrillers they're not straight horror movies they're not slasher movies but like arlington road from 1999 one of my all-time favorites (laughs) <laughs> so stuff like that. I, I tend not to like slasher movies all that much once we got past Halloween because Halloween and Black Christmas kind of did everything that those that genre could do. So that's that's my but that's my world right there. Okay, cool. <laughs> okay, so Tourist Trap, 1979, PG rated horror movie, and again, just a bunch of nobodies. Again, the, the lead in this movie is an actor named Chuck Connors, who people may know. He was in the uh, 60s and 70s. He played in a show called The Rifleman. Very well known as a actor in westerns. He had a big, thick, rugged jaw, just looked like a cowboy. And then kind of towards the end of his career, he decided he wanted to kind of reinvent himself as a horror movie actor. He wanted to maybe try something new, similar to what Boris Karloff did. Boris Karloff became a horror actor later in his career. So Chuck Connors did this movie, Tourist Trap, where he plays the evil uh, Mr. Slauson. And again, it didn't really happen for him, but it's it's that's the, the history behind this movie. It's kind of a star vehicle for Chuck Connors. Now, now do you know Chuck Connors? at all um i haven't really seen anything else he's i believe yeah (laughs) and that doesn't surprise me i didn't think you would i'm just curious but yeah so that's the only real name in this movie chuck connors and then there's uh four teenagers they're going to get killed through the course of the movie at his fun house of uh mannequins one of them is played by tanya roberts who uh, people might know she was on Charlie's Angels and she was a James Bond girl. She was in uh, A View to a Kill with Roger Moore. So that's that's really the extent of the name recognition in this movie. Uh, also, Tanya Roberts, she was also the mother of Donna in that 70s show. <laughs> that's right. And she was also in a movie called The Beastmaster. Ah, uh, really? I have that. <laughs> and she is without question the standout hot girl in this movie. In fact, I've even I've even uh, seen reviews say uh, her little uh, halter top that she wears. That's the true star of the movie, Tanya Roberts' halter top. <laughs> I know. I was the first time I saw this. I was actually shocked when I later on found out that that was actually Donna's mom from that show. <laughs> like I was like, oh, I mean, like afterwards I pieced it together, but I was like, 
Yeah, you know, like she was like pretty smoking in this movie. Oh yeah, no, there's yeah, there's some hot girls in this movie, and again, there's but there's no nudity, and that's what makes this movie stand out of its era. That there's not a single like there's no there's barely any swearing, and there's no nudity. There's hardly any blood at all. And I, I read a funny story about that that the, there was actually was supposed to be nudity in the script. These girls were supposed to get topless in a swimming scene, but the director was so shy he couldn't ask them to take their tops off. <laughs> and so they just didn't do it and that's why the movie ended up getting a PG because there were no boobs in it so it's really the director's fault because he was a shy gentleman that this movie bombed I know but it's that, that story because I, I, I'd also read that before and that, that was like incredibly funny to me because I feel like if he would have brought it across like during the casting process I feel like you know he would have been able to get more of a clear vision um, <laughs> his vision <laughs> it's like or I mean <laughs> Yeah, it's like, I don't know, I feel like he would have been able to, yeah, like, he would have been able to know the end product, I should say, better, uh, if he wouldn't have been so shy about such things, because he actually asked them at, while, like, before they were going to shoot that scene, and, you know, obviously they're going to say no, <laughs> but, it's, yeah, I don't know, I just find it funny that he didn't, like, make it clear during the casting process, because, like, it's almost, in a way, even more awkward that he asked it while they were going to do it, you know, it's just like... I don't know. That that just is funny to me. But so I guess this is our advice to all future directors out there: fight for your vision. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we'll, we'll whip through this movie again. There's not a lot of plot. This isn't a very intricate drama or anything. Like it's really just four people show up at this. Oh wait, no. There's there's these uh, five. There's five teenagers at the start of the movie. They're on like a little. Uh, joyriding trip cross-country trip i don't know and one of their cars breaks down and so the start of the movie is one of them just walking to the nearest gas station rolling a tire because his car is broken down and we're out in california somewhere we're in the middle of nowhere i don't know where this is set specifically but <laughs> people who have been in central california or the deserts of california you know there's some pretty barren areas around there where there's nothing going on and so this guy rolls his tire, and he ends up at this place called uh, Slauson's, Oasis, Slauson's Lost Oasis and Gas Station. And he goes inside, and again, he's all by himself. And he just walks into this abandoned restaurant, and he's kind of looking around for someone to help him. And he walks to the back room, and in the back room, there's all these mannequins sitting there, all these... Again, store mannequins, just creepy, lifelike models. And he's like, huh. And he's looking around, and all of a sudden, the doors slam in the room, and all the mannequins start coming to life. And again, this is the scene that Stephen King specifically mentioned in his book as being so creepy, and it really is effective. This yeah. is one of the better starts to a horror movie I can think of of the 70s or any era, where just yeah. everything in the room goes crazy. And it's like that's that like almost like a scene of Mary Poppins while the things are flying around the room like the cleaning the nursery. But yeah, so the mannequins are coming after him and screaming at him. These these uh, metal pieces of shards are going flying across the room trying to impale him and stuff. And he ends up getting uh, his arm trapped in the door. A mannequin grabs him and holds him. And then this metal rod pierces him through the door. And it's like, whoa, that's quite a start to a horror movie. It really jumps and gets you makes you jump out of your seat there. And the, really, the movie is going to try to keep up with that pace all along. And it's it's again, that's just the standout scene right at the start of this movie really creepy and it's one that you you might want to uh make sure you're ready for that one before you see it it's it's pretty intense yeah for sure and i mean i feel like also the the soundtrack that goes with it also kind of you know complements that entire scene uh because it's just so unsettling and then also the noises that the mannequins make it's just like such a haunting scene for sure for those for people who don't know it the mannequins in this movie they are very 
lifelike, incredibly lifelike, but they all have this one expression where their jaw hangs open and it's, it like hangs down further than the human mouth would hang down. And it's really just an odd, creepy visual. And you're going to see it over and over in this movie, these dark, lifeless dolls turning at you, their eyes moving towards you, and their mouths just hanging open to a degree that's about 20 degrees further than it should open. And it's just a just creeping maw. And that's all I can say about it. That's the one thing that you'll remember about this movie and what really made it stand out for Stephen King, those creepy doll heads. <laughs> yeah, and then also the, the the climax of the movie. Don't mean to jump ahead too much, but like just just to point this out real quick, that the climax of the movie features a scene where uh before like the main character, you know, kills the villain, she like all the mannequins kinda like turn their heads uh-huh. just like start staring at her, but it's like and then like the mouths just truly go wide open and just like this kind of like almost screech type of sound. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, you know, that that really that, those type of scenes are the stuff that stick with you, you know? <laughs> Not only does it stick with me, it makes me wonder why more horror movies don't use mannequins as a plot device or like wax statues or stuff like that, because it's so naturally unsettling just to see these these creepy human looking faces turning towards you and moving on their own. And it just astounds me there aren't that many movies that use this. I know. I, I feel the exact same way, because like I there's a certain scene in the movie where there's a certain scene in the movie where Chuck Connors is like looking for his you know, brother, and he's going through the rooms, you know, calling his name out, but it's like as he's going through them, he's kind of going one by one, but every single, like, the hallway that he's going through, as well as the rooms are all dark Mm -hmm. at the beginning. But as soon as, like, he turns on the first light, you can kind of see the silhouettes of some of the mannequins, Mm -hmm. you know, like, on both sides, and it's like as he goes further down, and he's, like, turning on the lights from the room, it kind of, like, illuminates a little bit more of the hallway, and it's like every single time, the mannequins are just like silhouettes and it's like kind of the, just the way that the lighting was used in that scene was very impressive and very unsettling. Just the fact that the mannequins are there as silhouettes. It's like, it kind of creates this really uneasy feeling as you're watching it. Yeah. And that's what's so amazing about this movie is that even when mannequins aren't doing anything, they're scary. They're just standing there. And there's entire scenes in this movie. People are walking by them or just in between two mannequins. And you know something's going to happen eventually, but you don't know when. And that's what makes it so, so unsettling because they're not even doing anything and they're still scary. And so that's, yeah, that's the one thing that I just can't get over about this movie, that it's not gory, it's not jump scary, it's not unpleasant, there's no torture, but it's just unsettling. You're just in this weird house with these weird mannequins, and we'll get into the plot here. I'm just going to run through it real quick. Basically, yeah, the other four young people go to this gas station and try to find what happened to their missing friend. They end up meeting this guy, Mr. Slauson. He runs a place called Slauson's Lost Oasis, and there's a big sign out in front which basically says... Uh, famous figures, notorious bandits, Indian artifacts, wild animals. And this, you get the sense this was a one time, this very important tourist spot that people would stop and it's kind of dried up. Nobody goes here anymore. So it's just this old man living alone in this museum with all these wax figures. And again, it's, uh, there are a lot of celebrities. Like there's a uh, Buffalo Bill down there. There's General Custer. There's Civil War. So like it was like a one time a museum people would stop at to look at all the wax statues. And now it's just all dried up. And so, yeah, it's just this old man living alone with all these statues. And we'll find out later, 
this is where I'm basically going to spoil the movie that this guy has a power. He's got this telekinesis he can do and he can make the mannequins come to life. He can make them move. He can make them appear to be alive. And that's what's keeping him from going insane all these years living alone on this place that these mannequins are his friends. He can control them. He can animate them. And basically he's got this sick part of his brain that when people show up, he wants to entertain them. If they want to leave, he's going to kill them. No one's allowed to leave because he's so lonely. He needs more people here. He'll have his mannequins kill the people, and then he has this process that he can do where he basically turns their flesh into a mannequin, into like this polymer or latex, and they will be they will become mannequins that will live in his museum for the rest of eternity, and that's he preserves them, and these are how he has his friends. So it's just some very bad things are going to happen to these people in his museum. That actually reminds me, because he, he does, you know, have that like multi-personality thing going on. Uh, throughout the movie, and that you know, of course, reminds me of Norman Bates. Um, movie villains like that, you know, also just like uh, Leatherface, even you know, that they just kind of and, and connect to something that they truly that truly gives them comfort. Mm-hmm. And like in their warped perspective, it kind of just makes sense. Um, so like they'll do like really messed up shit to like actually preserve it. If you know what I mean? Yeah. I was going to say the two movies that this gets compared to the most, and just if you read through reviews and, and articles about horror movies, the two movies this one gets compared to are Psycho, because it's the sad guy living alone, and just he's he's so pathetic that his, you know, Norman Bates' mom died. In this one, the Sloss and his wife died, his brother died. We learn later that he caught his brother having an affair with his wife. He killed them both, and then he animated their corpses and made them into mannequins so he could keep them around. So yeah, Psycho, this is very similar to. And then, again, like you said earlier texas chainsaw massacre that it feels very similar it's so low budget and raw it's just kind of unnerving in that way because it feels so cheap and almost real in a way yeah and that's one of the things i love about just chuck connors in general and his character is you know the fact that they they do try and really humanize him because like i mean i guess it takes kind of someone with i wouldn't say a broken mind but someone who tragedy he's been through tragedy yeah, so, so I feel like he's definitely one of the more sympathetic, you know, like slasher movie villains. Yeah, Chuck Connors kind of gives it a little bit of dignity and just kind of uh, competence because he's, again, it, this isn't really the type of movie he does, but he is was a respected actor and he kind of had some stature in the world at the time. So, like, he kind of holds this movie together where you got this guy doing incredibly sick things. And that's the thing with this movie that, you know, three of these teenagers are going to die just because they're expendable. But one of the girls in the in the party, her name is Molly. And, and this guy Sloss and Chuck Connors falls in love with her. He basically, she reminds him of his wife. And you almost, you see his backstory here that he's killed all these people over the years. He just has an entire house and a museum full of tourists he has killed to keep him company as mannequins. And then the saddest thing is his wife. He keeps his wife on display. He murdered her many years ago when she had an affair. He somehow turned her into this really lifelike mannequin. And they even say at some point when someone touches her skin and says, wow, she, that feels like flesh. And it, like it is is flesh underneath the the, uh, the the polymer. But yeah, so he keeps her in display in the museum, a tribute to his beautiful wife he loved so many years. And now this movie, he finds one of these girls, Molly, who reminds him of his wife, and that's the thing. He wants her to become the new wife, and that's where that's why she just doesn't die like everybody else. So it's the story of, is Molly going to escape? Is she going to become his wife? Is she going to get turned into a mannequin? And that's really the struggle of this movie. And again, the second half, it kind of gets bogged down in chase scenes and you know extended kill scenes before he kills somebody but that's the whole premise of this movie will Slosson get a replacement wife or not 
<laughs> basically. Yeah. If you want to sum this up for the the uh, Golden Retriever video movie guide or something, that's the one sentence of the movie right there. Will Slauson get a replacement wife? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> I don't think about it that way, but that. Okay. Well, let's go. Let's go through the kill scenes again. That's kind of what people. Again, I I, I know people may watch this movie even if they don't know, know horror movie, even if they don't like horror movies because maybe we sold it correctly. So let's go through the kill scene. So the first guy, Woody, shows up, gets impaled by all the all the uh, metal things, and then the mannequins attack him. The second girl, uh, Eileen, I believe is her name. She's got real frizzy hair. She shows up, and she, she starts snooping around Slauson's house, and she meets Slauson's crazy uh, twin brother, also played by Chuck Connors, named Davey. And then she will end up getting uh, strangled. All these mannequins will kind of corner her in a room. And the telekinetically, Davy will make her scarf. She'll be strangled by her own scarf. And later she will turn into a mannequin. We'll see her. Uh, let's see. What are the other two? Uh, you got uh, Tina, right? Tina's the girl that he kidnaps off the freeway? Um... Yes, it is Tina. It's At one point, we don't have enough characters in this movie, so... The bad guy had to go physically steal someone from the highway. He stole this girl, Tina, and she's the one where we see this really, really unsettling scene. And this is the one I cannot believe did not end up in a rated R movie where he's going to oh, turn yeah. her into a mannequin. And we see the process, which basically him tying her down to a table. He smears all this plaster on her face or like latex. And then he basically is taunting her the whole time as he's doing this. Like, you're not going to die from the suffocation. You're going to die from fear. You'll panic and your heart will explode. And he's like covering her mouth or nostrils. And again, it's really unsettling. And this is probably the hardest core horror scene I have recommended in any of my movies so far. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that, that particular scene, it's like, as he's explaining everything, it's like you envision yourself in that situation, and he explains it so thoroughly, where you're just like, you know, as he's explaining that the skin is going to start burning, and just like, and then, you know, as, and then right before he finished, or right before he covers the last part, you know, her nose, so that will make her not breathe anymore, and, you know, he's explaining that she'll die of panic beforehand, and it's just like... That entire scene, it's just like you're just basically on the tip of your chair, and it's just like, yeah, it's very, very unsettling, like you said. And I'm really shocked that that was not a scene that convinced the MPAA to actually make it an R rating because, yeah, that is definitely pretty hardcore. <laughs> yeah, and then for people who haven't seen this movie and probably won't see this movie, just listen to the end of this episode because I always do a little stinger at the end of the uh, episode. I, I have my Deathstalker 2 theme music, and then at the end I put a little sound clip from the movie that we just talked about. I will try to put his speech there as the stinger. So you can hear him taunting her and saying that she's going to suffocate and her heart is going to explode, and that'll be the stinger. So just listen to that one and then, then decide if you would like to watch this movie or not. <laughs> so go, going back to Eileen and her death scene, so the, the second death scene, you know, the one where she's snooping through the house, uh, that one was um, because that's when Chuck Connors actually, or, you know, in his mannequin form, is standing behind, like, he suddenly, like, appears behind her. Yeah. And it's very... I, I don't know how to explain it. It's like, yeah, that is definitely one of those scenes that also kind of stuck with me, too. It's because all of a sudden he's just there you know behind her and it's just like 
and that like kind of blank expression it's just like oh geez yeah sometimes Slauson is just walking around as this old dude this old farmer with a limp and a shotgun and then at other times he will play his his twin brother Davy and he's got like a, a half of a mannequin's mask over his head it's a very unsettling look it's almost drag queeny in a way he kind of looks yeah. and it's got these dark blank eyes and only his lower jaw moves like the, the top of his mouth doesn't move and it's just an unsettling look when he's out there hunting for kids or getting ready to stalk them and kill them and turn them into mannequins he's got this very uh yeah it's just a very odd look and he loves to sneak up behind people and just stand there and watch them and again this movie doesn't have a whole lot of jump scares but it is just unsettling to see him just watching people before he's going to kill them he just kind of he likes to watch them and observe them before all the festivities yeah <laughs> definitely noticed that um it's it's also funny like one of the earlier scenes you know once they're swimming in the pond um it's almost comical like how close he is to observing them and they're just totally oblivious to it yeah that actually made me laugh all it's just barely rewatching it because it's like he's so close and you guys are just like you know playfully being in the pod yeah well it's funny because a lot of people forget that michael myers did that in the original halloween he just watches people yeah and that's what actually makes it creepier that, that in the original Halloween, I think there's only three or four murders in the whole movie and that there's like a huge chunk of time where nothing happens. And it's just Michael Myers walk, walking around just basically being a peeping Tom. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like, um, yeah, Michael Myers is definitely one of those like silent, you know. He's a perv. <laughs> basically. <laughs> yeah, because, yeah, I mean, not, now that I think about it, a lot of the scenes in Halloween, I mean, also it's sequels, it's him basically observing women as they change. Yeah, so that's the thing. Not only he a murderer, he's a sicko. He's a perv. <laughs> Creep. Right. The more I find out about this Michael Myers character, the more I, more I don't like him. <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah. So we've killed we've killed most of the people in this movie. We killed three, and now we get the the really big signature death scene. This is Tanya Roberts, the the hot girl again, who who he, the director was unable to persuade to go topless, even though I believe she was in Playboy like a year after this. So he just he just missed his window there. Right. But yeah, there's a really long extended chase scene in this movie where Tanya Roberts, her name is uh, what is her name in this movie? Becky, I believe. Yes. <laughs> that's that's a fun drinking game one could play. Try to remember the character names in Tourist Trap. <laughs> I know. It's like all the characters, you know, they just kind of mend. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I feel like that's kind of what slashers in general, though. Yeah. It's like character names. They're just basically irrelevant. <laughs> I, I will say it's fun to talk about uh, horror movies on staff picks because I don't have to care who the actors are. <laughs> oh yeah, just blonde girl, then the other blonde girl, like because <laughs> it doesn't matter most of the time. And this one, there's Tanya Roberts and then a couple other people, and that's how I remember it. But yeah, so the big extended chase scene where the hot girl gets chased and uh, basically sloths and toys with her, he brings her down to his oasis. The this is his the museum with all the famous figures with Custer and all these guys, and he basically just. Open, puts her in the middle of the room and he locks all the doors with his mind and just as a sport he just kind of watches all his mannequins going crazy and trying to kill her and that's the other big uh, signature scene in this movie where you know, like uh, General Custer's shooting at her you got a Civil War guy shooting at her and she's just dodging bullets and dodging all these attacks and this Native American guy ends up flinging a knife into the back of her head and again that's another scene that I don't remember a whole lot of PG movies where people graphically got a knife to the back of the head. So I know, and you also see the blood. Yeah, that's the only blood I think in the movie. <laughs> I know, and it's like she—it's really 
it's a really haunting image, you know, as she's like feeling her head and then like kind of like brings it brings her hand down and then you see the blood. Yeah, that's, you know, another one of those scenes where it's just like this is too hardcore to be PG. <laughs> the director had a good point. Like he may had a good argument. This movie should not be PG and it probably did kill any chance it ever have of making an audience because again, this is the Friday the 13th era and people are not going to go see a PG rated slasher movie. I'm sorry. I... Yeah, they just won't. <laughs> Although I will see, have you ever seen the uh, James Bond movie of You Do a Kill where Tanya Roberts is in it? Um, I have not seen many James Bond movies. Okay. Well, yeah, this is more for the people who have. People who have seen that movie know that Tanya Roberts is exceptionally annoying in that movie where she just screams, James, like the whole movie. And so if you wanted her to get a knife in the back of the head at any point in A View to a Kill, this movie would be very cathartic because you do finally see it. So there you go. If you if you hate her in A View to a Kill, watch this movie and you will gain a small bit of closure in your life. I, there's That actually reminds me of uh, the scene in House of Wax, the remake, mm -hmm. which... Which is a pretty terrible movie, but it's like... Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that the one with Paris Hilton? Isn't she in that? Yeah. Yeah, speaking of inanimate figures who open their mouths and make sounds, Paris Hilton's in that movie. <laughs> yeah. The, the, thing, the thing that's like so satisfying about that movie is you know, Paris Hilton does get probably the most gruesome death of that movie. <laughs> oh, good. And, but I mean, and, and it's funny because like House of Wax, that's one of those movies that really kind of captures the same weird you know thing because it has to do with wax figure so you know kind of has that same type of vibe as the tourist trap i mean even though you know the the remake of house of wax is definitely or the re-remake because that's like the second remake uh of house of wax is actually you know for the most part just a cliche you know horror movie mm -hmm. um but it does you know have some merits and one of those merits is you know that it has that similar vibe of or it just has that similar aspect of inanimate, you know, figures, basically. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny. I, I've actually heard people say that, oh, I, House of Wax, that's like a remake of Tourist Trap. And I'm like, well, not really. But one could say Tourist Trap is kind of a remake of the original House of Wax. And they're not yeah. they're not straight remakes of one another. But, yeah, they all share kind of a similar uh, uh, vibe. Yeah, like the, the funny thing, like with House of Wax, like I think there was um, – because it, it actually has three different versions. Because um, there was one in 1990, no, yeah, 1933. That was the original. And then they came out with the Vincent Price one in 1953. And then, and then I think it was like 2004, 2005. And oh no, 2005. That's when they came out with the re remake. So like that's one of those like rare movies that it has more than just one remake but anyways that's kind of going off topic when, when you said there were three versions i thought you meant there was like three different endings of the the house of wax in the 2000s and i was going to say like one version paris hilton dies and another version Lindsay lohan dies and another one like the olsen twins both get picked off <laughs> i mean that that would be pretty comical but <laughs> it's like clue they filmed it with three different endings and you got whichever theater you went to you got to see a different ending <laughs> I would pay money for that, to be honest. <laughs> okay, so really, that's the whole plot of the movie. All these people get picked off, and Slauson kills them, turns them into mannequins that will live forever with him in his house. And at the end of the movie, we get this showdown where he's got the one girl, Molly, who, I have to say, in a, in a movie, you know, most slasher movies don't have good acting. 
And this movie is surprisingly competent. It's actually not that bad because they have Chuck Connors and they have some other decent actors, which is weird. I know when Tanya Roberts is in the conversation, but I have to say the heroine in this movie, Molly, is the worst actress of the bunch. And she's absolutely brutal in some of these scenes at the end where she's emoting. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like they're just because I feel like especially that one scene that I was already speaking about earlier when she is talking to Chuck Connors, Mm -hmm. uh, it's like or basically when she's like listening to him and the story like her expression shows a bit of sympathy but then like her character just all of a sudden changes as soon as the guy comes and save her and it's like just so it felt so strange and out of place yeah. you know it's just yeah. like and i think it had a lot to do with the acting it just like was like <laughs> she's terrible <laughs> yeah <laughs> i hate to say that i hope she's not listening i'm sure she became a very accomplished actress later in life but at this point in her career maybe she shouldn't have been the lead in the movie that's all i'm saying for sure, yeah. I thought I thought like Tanya Roberts should have honestly been the lead. Yeah, exactly. You got <laughs> whatever. She's gonna be on the cover of Playboy in a year. You give her the lead in the movie. Don't make her the second death or the second second in command. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. So Molly, the main girl, gets a proposition by Sloss, and he wants her to live with him and become his wife. And he starts doing creepy stuff like putting his. He made a mask out of his dead wife's face. He puts it on her and starts kissing her. And she's like, eh. And like, so he's like, say you love me, say you're going to stay with me. And so she has to kind of say this just to appease him. And then at the end of the movie, we get the showdown where one of the male teenagers, Jerry, I think his name is, Jerry comes in and he saves yeah. the day. He's got a knife or something. He's going to start an axe. He's going to hit Slauson with it. And this is where we discover that Slauson has another power that we weren't aware of, where he can just suddenly turn Jerry from flesh to mannequin using his mind. Wait, what? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you remember the scene where Jerry's about to save the day, and Slauson's like, you can't kill me! And he like blinks his eyes, and all of a sudden Jerry's a mannequin. Jerry has literally turned into a, a latex mannequin right there in the spot, which we were unaware that Slauson had this power up until this point in the movie, and it's like, oh, crap. <laughs> like No one's ever going to escape if he can do that to people. I know. that There was definitely a certain, you know, you... He was a little bit overpowered at times, and that was definitely one of those scenes where you're just like, shit, you know, like, nothing can go past this guy, and it's, yeah, because all of a sudden, you know, he just starts taking the, the arm off. Yeah, he pulls Jerry's arm off. Jerry's Jerry's still human from neck up, and he's looking around, he's like, what? And Slauson starts pulling his arms off and throwing him around the room, so yeah, it's it becomes the boss fight, basically. Right? <laughs> yeah, that part was, it's because it's basically like the anti, like, I don't know, it's just like, it's it's so, I don't know, it's like just the most uncliche type of thing you'd possibly see because, like, in a regular slasher film, you know, like, the guy would come in and he'd probably save the day, you know, like, that's typically how it works. Mm-hmm. But, like, that one, it seemed like they almost poked fun at it in a way, you know, it's because he, you know, just, like, nonchalantly just pulled his arm off and then he just twisted his head off and just, like, he basically just looked at Molly and was like, what you gonna do about it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and this movie culminates with this big scene. The hero, Jerry, has come back to save the day. He gets turned into a mannequin, and it's basically Holly and Slauson. And the last scene in this movie is just this insane scene of of the mannequins all coming back to human form and Slauson laughing, and they're all chanting, join us, join us. It's like it's like an <laughs> Evil Dead movie at this point. Like, what the hell is going on in this movie? And then she just nonchalantly picks up an axe and hits Slauson in the back of the head and kills him, which I think is kind of a cop-out of an ending, but... 
Molly, yeah, yeah, she escapes, she goes and leaves. And, and this is where we get this wonderfully bizarre final shot in the movie. It's a freeze frame. They actually freeze on this before we go to the credits of Molly driving away with her four dead friends in the back seat. She's basically her and her four mannequin friends. Now they've all been killed and turned into latex. And she's, she has them in the back seat of her Jeep and they're all sitting there all stiff and awkward, but she's driving with them and she escaped and she's got this weird look of terror on her face. Like what the hell am I going to do with these four mannequins now? And this is where the movie ends it just stops so we get the happy ending but at the same time it's kind of unsettling because what's she gonna do with four mannequins of her dead friends now i know and it, you know like just the fact that it was a freeze frame ending was like it's because like you, you're able to truly observe it you know and it, oh yeah you get to see every detail yeah <laughs> oh, i i actually like that ending. i didn't like how you know how she kills the villain because i just feel like that was kind of a cop-out uh, type of thing but i did like the final shot though that was you know the freeze frame yeah that was pretty this is one of those movies i always feel would have been stronger with an unhappy ending where he basically turns molly into his wife and she lives in as a mannequin in his house i think that would have been more unsettling and it would open the door for even if they didn't do a sequel where you'd think man what would have happened next like the guy got away with it that's why i wish it would have been an unhappy ending but we get the bizarre her friends are all dead and she's taking their mannequins ostensibly home with her. So she's going to put them in her house or something, which I don't, I don't know. But anyway, I know, it's like, what's she going to do with that? Yeah, exactly. She's going to sell them. They didn't have eBay yet. So I don't know what she's going to do. Yeah. So she's like going to give them to her, to their parents and basically be like this, you know, like they, they were lost along the way. <laughs> yeah. And here's the memory for you. <laughs> that is the world's worst Christmas present. Your son's dead, but here's the mannequin that looks exactly like him. Merry Christmas. Basically, I mean, it's truly like it's it's iconic ending, but it's like once you really think about it, it's like what's she gonna do? With okay. it? And you think like a, a mannequin of your deceased child—that's not like a really good Christmas gift. That's more like a shitty Hanukkah gift. Right. <laughs> Sorry, I had to do that one. <laughs> okay. So yeah. So the movie ends, and it's just. This wonderfully bizarre, off-kilter, unsettling horror movie. And again, its I would say it's about 45 to 50 minutes of a great horror movie, and then about 30 minutes of other stuff, and then a w wonderfully twisted ending. And again, it's, as I said at the start, it's not a masterpiece, but it's not a waste of your time either. It's right in the middle ground of these movies that that you would have found in a video store in the 80s, you would have just grabbed at random, and you would have watched, and you would have remembered it. Like, you might not have yeah. loved it, but it would have stuck in your psyche. You would have remembered those damn mannequins. Right. And, like, like I remember those damn, damn film strips attacking that guy back in 1980. I've never forgotten that. And that's the thing with this movie, that it's just... I, w I would highly recommend everybody see it at least once, just so you can know what we're talking about with the creepiness of these mannequins and the music, and there's jaws that just hang open little a little further than they should. It's just very unsettling and weird. Yeah. Let's see. There was one scene um, that I, like, once you know the context of it, it's pretty funny. I believe it's Molly who's, like, in a bed at some point, and mannequin figure like gives her a drink and then it's like that's all you see from that mannequin um but apparently but she turns to life she turns to life right what's that yeah the mannequin i know the scene you're talking about them there's she's laying in bed and all of a sudden there's a mannequin staring at her and all of a sudden the mannequin like turns to flesh and starts giving her a drink yeah. and then goes back and goes into mannequin again i know exactly that scene yeah yeah so that that's that is actually the the, the director's wife oh and uh, she actually, she actually had lines. I think she had like two lines in that scene, 
and he edited them out, and she has never forgiven him for it. You cut out your wife's lines? That's terrible. I know. <laughs> yeah, so that, that I found to be pretty interesting piece of trivia right there. Yeah, as we get later into the movie, for people who haven't seen it, the mannequins are going from stone to flesh to flesh to stone, like they're going turning into real life and then back again. And it's just it's just crazy. It's back and forth. You have no idea what's up, what's down, what's going on, what's real until the very end. So yeah, it's just it's, it, it. I think it gets a little too complex and fancy for its own good. But the movie's clearly having a good time. And again, it's just so off kilter. It keeps you off balance, and that's what I love in a good horror movie where you don't really know what's going on, what's truth and what isn't. Yeah, I entirely agree. <laughs> and I have to say, I have to say, as before we go here. There was one mannequin I saw in this last viewing. There's a scene where uh, it's uh, Becky and Jerry, I think, are hiding in the hall, and Slauson's looking for them in his house, and they're kind of blending in, trying to be look like a mannequin so he can't find them. If you look very close, one of the mannequins looks is a dead ringer for Taylor Swift. <laughs> so there you go. For the for these Swift heads out there, the, you can watch this movie and look for your heroine. She's in here somewhere as a mannequin. <laughs> um, that's that scene is actually. Uh, incredibly comical to me, like, cause I, cause like they, cause the mannequins around them are so real. Yeah, I mean, but it's like it's still they're clearly still mannequins though, you know. Um, whereas you know, like Tony Roberts and uh Jerry, I don't know the actor's name, so I'll just say that. But um, you know, they are clearly humans amongst mannequins in that scene. You know, like like you can definitely see the contrast between the humans and the mannequins, even though that the mannequins are you know very human like. It's like that scene, you can definitely see the difference. And what I find so funny about it is that the, is that Chuck Connors, uh, you know, is basically just like going or is like walking throughout the entire room, just looking at all the mannequins and he doesn't see the difference. I find it hard to believe he wouldn't know every single mannequin in his house by name. I know. And, because you know, he's doing creepy stuff to those mannequins. So, like, I'm sure he knows every inch of every one of those female mannequins. So, yeah, it's weird that there's two humans that he happens to be chasing that act, that look nothing like any of the mannequins, yet they're able to fool him by standing in the middle of mannequins and, and just standing still. It is, I can see in that instance why Riff Tracks may have wanted to riff this movie. <laughs> yeah, that was one of those scenes where I was honestly cracking up. Like, I thought that was pretty funny, but... <laughs> I mean, I knew Tanya Roberts was a wooden actress, but that's that's really stretching it. <laughs> right. <laughs> um by the way another interesting piece of trivia is that this movie is actually this movie is a remake to this director's like short th thesis film about a blind man who lives alone in a theater attic i heard about that this was like an art fair like a student film he made in college right yeah so i mean i've never seen it myself but um it's it, it is technically a remake it's probably like a 20-minute student film, and he probably won some awards for it. And then a couple of years later, he's like, I could expand that and make it a horror movie, which for people who know their Evil Dead trivia is something that Sam Raimi once did, that he made a student film and just expanded that into the Evil Dead. So that's not really uncommon. Yeah, true. But yeah, it's still, it's still interesting because like the, the, the plot of, of the original, which is it's called uh, The Spider Will Kill You. Mm -hmm. It's basically about you know, how he kind of falls in love with, with the mannequin. And it's not really about any sort of like obsessive thing about like him trying to collect so many mannequins. It's just about him and one other mannequin. And what's that? What's that title? It's called the, the, the Spider Will Kill You. Okay. I've never heard that. I saw the one in the 80s with Andrew McCarthy and Kim Cattrall where he falls in love with a mannequin. Mm. But I, I'm guessing that's a whole different story. 
Yeah, <laughs> probably. <laughs> okay, before we sign off here, I have to say one of the greatest things about this movie. Again, it's again, it's not a masterpiece, but there's so many neat things about this movie, and it's just fun to talk about because it's fun to watch and just discuss how goofy it is. But yeah. The the tagline of this movie, the slogan which I've always thought is just absolute marketing genius. You know which one I'm talking about? It's written on the cover of the DVD. Um, All right, here it is. Go, go ahead. <laughs> Here's the tagline of this movie. Every year, young people disappear. And that's it. So it's it's implied that of the hundreds and hundreds of runaways and missing uh, missing persons cases in the 70s, that many of them met fates similar to this, where they ended up at Slauson's Lost Oasis and turned into mannequins. So that's what I love about the open-endedness of that slogan. Every year, young people disappear. I know. It's like so, it's trying to be like so like ominous and it's so unintentionally like, I don't know, so unintentionally offensive <laughs> well yeah just think about that next time you're in sears or uh, target or something and you see a mannequin just think that could be a missing kid back from the 70s and there i just made it i just made your trip to target a lot creepier <laughs> but um there's two more actually tri trivia pieces that i wanted to discuss okay two more then we'll sign off here what do you got um so it what one of them is about the the plaster that's like used on, on her face. Yes, yeah, yeah, so that is. I mean, like originally when I saw it, I honestly thought that was just shaving cream. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that was like a long time ago, but um, but it's actually dough, which I don't know how they were able to make it look like that. But <laughs> I've always wondered in that scene because she's got dough smeared on her face, and clearly, like they're not killing her, but like. How did that actress breathe during that scene? I don't see any visible straws or any holes in her nose that's allowing her to breathe. So I don't know. And you see her with stuff on her face covering her nostrils and mouth and eyes for a good five minutes. So I don't know how they filmed that without killing her. And I'm assuming they didn't kill her. But then again, this is the 70s where it was unregulated. They may have just killed the actress. I don't know. <laughs> I assume they didn't. But I, I do wonder that when I watch that, how did she not suffocate right there? I know. That was... It's because it also just like the, you know, the way that she, her chest is going up and down, mm -hmm. like, and then together with like the visuals of that all being over her face, it's, yeah, it does leave you wondering. <laughs> um, all right. What else? What else you got? So, so the, it's about Tanya Robert when she is running through the woods. Um, she actually insisted that she would do that with her shoes off. So just barefoot. <laughs> so she's a method actress. <laughs> yeah, because I, I, she, at least the way she explained it was that she wanted it to create more like of a genuine feeling of fear and distress within her, <laughs> uh, you know, so it would be able to have a more pure performance, I guess. Which, you know, I, I can respect that. You know, she, she, she's at least you know putting some effort into it. So wait, she wouldn't take her top off, but she'd take her shoes off. <laughs> yeah, but the interesting thing though was that the result of all of that was that her feet were bloody. Well, yeah, you think? These stars, they suffer for our art. <laughs> yeah. Tonya Roberts specifically ran barefoot through the forest for a scene, just to make the scene look better. And really, you don't even notice. All you notice is that in real life, she ended up with bloody feet. So the, star the stars, they suffer for their craft. Right. <laughs> it's pretty glorious. Um, and then also a glorious quote that I feel is very underappreciated is uh, when Davey, you know, Chuck Connors' character is like, 
we're going to have a party. <laughs> and then he starts like dancing as soon as like right before he's actually going to put the plaster on that girl's face. And like the um, Tanya Roberts and uh, Jerry are just like kind of observing as he's basically just dancing and, you know, saying we're going to have a party. And then like two minutes later, he's killing, you know, like gruesomely like killing. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Not, it's not not the type of scene you'd see from Chuck Connors of the Rifleman where he's dancing around and having a tea party while wearing a women's wig. <laughs> I, I actually appreciate that. It's very, yeah, it's admirable <laughs> in my mind. Okay, Justin, before we sign off, do you have anything else you want to say about the horror genre, tourist trap, the soundtrack, anything in general? Tanya Roberts, her halter top, any last comments? Um, Let's see. I would like to add that um though i've seen like a shit ton of horror movies i am still really trying to get into the more um obscure like horror movies like for example the the white ribbon uh by michael haneke or you know like some of the more obscure like psychological films um you know and 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 funny games and you know and the and the david cronenberg films you know that have a more unhinged you know type of horror that is not particularly halted by any sort of studio expectations or anything like that. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely, I have so many on my watch list of, you know, horror movies like that, mm-hmm. that I'm sure that in a year, my horror, my horror movie perspective will be so much different. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so for right now, you know what I mentioned at the beginning, those are my current favorites and those have been my favorites for a while. So I don't think that those will generally change, but I feel like I'll soon get some more favorites added to that as i watch more of those types of movies okay as long as you never lose your love for movies like tourist trap no definitely not uh (laughs) i will always have a soft spot for slasher movies from the 70s and 80s like it's um yeah and there was that one movie that i recommended to you called terror at red wolf inn I've heard about that. I looked into that. That is one I, I it's it's a asterisk may, might be a staff picks episode in the future. So let's hold off on that one. Okay, cool. Cause yeah, that, that one is one you definitely appreciate. It's pretty bonkers and it's, it gets really interesting. So I, I think you'd really enjoy it. <laughs> okay. And again, that kind of wraps up our coverage here of tourist trap, as Justin said, kind of a bonkers, bizarre, very unsettling, understated, oddly PG-rated horror movie that Stephen King cannot say enough of. Again, this is his choice for the most underrated horror movie of all time. He said that in the early 80s. I don't know if he would still say that. But again, just when Stephen King is recommending something, you might want to check it out. So, as always, again, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you want to reach me, if you have any feedback, if you'd like any other, to mention any other movies you think I should talk about, you can reach me at Staff Picks Podcast at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. And until the next time I talk to you, I will be out there looking for underrated, underloved, or just unknown movies that I think just need a little more attention. I'll talk to you guys later. Watch out for the tourist traps out there. Goodbye. <laughs>
will burst from fright before you lose consciousness.